You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of Acts. Here's Nate. So as we come to Acts 4, we remember the setting. It's a continuation of the story that began at the beginning of Acts chapter 3. The church, of course, has already begun. Uh, The day of Pentecost is past tense. But the church is located exclusively there in Jerusalem. In Acts 3, we learn that Peter and John at 3 o'clock in the afternoon on a particular day went to the temple at the hour of prayer and on their way saw a man who was disabled, who had been brought there his entire life to beg or to ask for alms of the people who were going in and out of the temple. Uh, Peter and John looked at him, and he looked at them, and Peter told the man uh, that he, in the name of Jesus Christ, would be healed. And the man arose and was walking and leaping and praising God, and because he had been there for so many years, the people recognized him and were shocked to see him moving about and obviously healthy and whole. So they gathered together, and Peter preached a gospel message that, as we went through it in chapter 3, seems to be exclusively designed for the Jewish mind, but not only the Jewish mind, but for that generation of Jews who were directly involved in the rejection of their Messiah. Peter held out the grace and the opportunity of God's forgiveness uh, upon them and announced to them the glorious Uh, future coming of Christ, and, you know, was really just urging them to believe in the Lord. Now, it says in verse 1 of chapter 4, And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. So now you have uh, these leaders coming upon the scene. You know, there's Peter and John. They are preaching. They are speaking to the people. And some of the priests from the temple, you know, involved in the regular offerings and prayers and administration and sacrifice that was happening there at the temple, along with the captain of the temple. He he was the one responsible for maintaining peace in the temple area. Uh, They come together with also some Sadducees, and they want to know what's going on. And they become, it says in verse 2, greatly annoyed. Uh, The apostles were upsetting everything for them. The, The Sadducees were annoyed because they were teaching the people and they were proclaiming in Christ the resurrection from the dead which, of course, the Sadducees themselves rejected the idea of a bodily resurrection. And so, in verse 3, they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the the number of the men came to about 5,000. This is one of the sub-themes of the book of Acts, and it's just so beautiful the the sub theme being that God's word just continues to spread no matter what you try to do to it no matter how much you try to bind it or 
persecute it. Uh, the reality is it will spread. And the apostles here are bound, but the Bible, the word, the gospel is not. They are er arrested, but many believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000 uh, at that time. Uh, just all not, uh, just a days earlier, the number of men had come to about 3,000 on the day of Pentecost, but now things are really exploding, and the number of men, according to Luke, gets to be about 5,000 uh, by that time. Now, Paul prayed or asked for prayer in 2 Thessalonians 3 and said, Pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored. This is the constant desire of the apostle, the constant desire of the evangelist or the prophet or the pastor or teacher, the constant desire of the church is that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored. And here, when these men were arrested, the word of the Lord was still speeding ahead. The word of the Lord was still honored. There were many who believed. And uh, so, so often the open door for the word doesn't look exactly like we might think. And here, even in their arrested state, the gospel is spreading. Now on the next day, verse 5, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together at Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had, when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name do you do this? Now, uh, the previous day uh, apparently didn't allow enough time for them to have a trial. So they keep John and Peter overnight. And you have this listing of uh, significant figures of the high priestly family. A couple of them we recognize. Annas, uh, who was likely the true high priest, and Caiaphas, his son-in-law, who was considered by Rome the high priest, uh, they would have led a group of 70-plus uh, who were called the Sanhedrin and sort of operated as the Senate or the Supreme Court of the nation. And they also, with them, had a figure named John and Alexander, whom we don't know anything about. And they were all of the high priestly family. And they take Peter and John, you know, all of this prestige in contrast with these common fishermen who know the Lord. And they put Peter and John in the middle and they ask them by what power, or again, there is that phrase, by what name did you do this? And Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them in verse 8, rulers of the people and the elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. Now, Peter here takes the opportunity to preach another message. And the message is powerful and very bold. But it begins with Peter being filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, this is fascinating because this is the same man whom the Spirit had poured out upon in Acts chapter 2. And when he spoke there, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Here again, he is filled with the Holy Spirit. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit. It seems that we have one baptism uh, with the Holy Spirit, but many moments where we need to be filled 
with the Holy Spirit. It's not that the Holy Spirit wasn't residing inside of Peter before this moment. No, he's a converted man. The Holy Spirit is living within. But to afresh come upon him for speaking and preaching and declaring the truth of the gospel boldly, that's exactly what Peter needed at this moment. And I think we can relate to that concept, that though the Spirit reside within us, helping us to walk with the Lord and experience fruitfulness in him and helping us to pray, we need the filling of the Spirit, the fresh empowering of the Spirit at these moments that are of a deeper and greater magnitude than the everyday events of our lives would dictate. And Peter here at this moment, after being imprisoned for the night, I'm sure praying with John, is now filled with the Spirit. And he begins to, you know, rebuke them uh, for their work. But he tells them, look, what are we being examined for? If it's a good deed done to a crippled man and you want to know how he's been healed, you need to know that it happened by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. And this Jesus, verse 11, is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, Jesus quoted this same psalm about the stone being rejected from Psalm 118 in Luke chapter 20. Uh, there, when he talked about the parable and uh, of the vineyard workers rejecting the servants of the owner of the vineyard and then eventually killing the son of the owner of the vineyard, uh, there, Jesus said the same thing. The stone was rejected by you builders. And actually, interestingly enough, quite often, the word for stone and son were often used in a word play or interchanged in a word play together. So the idea of the stone being rejected, and here you have in Christ's parable, the son being rejected, helps us to understand uh, the meaning of what God is saying, that the cornerstone is the son himself. He's the missing piece to all of this. This Judaism that they'd held to was incomplete without the Messiah, incomplete without the son of God. And the very piece that they needed, the missing piece, the rejected son uh, had now come and they had denied him. But Peter announces there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Peter is committed here to the uniqueness of Christ. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who is healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. This, to me, is one of the more beautiful lines of the early parts of the book of Acts. You have here these religious leaders with all of their education, with all of their history, all their power, all their pomp, and all of their hypocrisy looking at these two fishermen, Peter and John. Peter boldly preaching and declaring. And they look at these men and they realize, they perceived, it says there in verse 13, that they were un educated, common men. And they were astonished at this, and they recognized that these men had been 
with Jesus. This, of course, isn't a verse that tells us that education is bad. It's not a verse that tells us that to work hard and to improve and to grow is a negative. No, it just simply helps us to understand that God was able to take men like Peter and men like John, who didn't have the formal training of that culture and society and era, and yet because they had been with Jesus, their level of education, their level of training was far and away greater and stronger than the education that they could have gained from this Sanhedrin. And it's just, just so powerful, so beautiful, because it helps us to remember and to be refreshed in the reality that we must be with Christ. And that as we are with Christ, the Lord can take the foolish things of the world and confound the wise with them. And that we should not build these walls where we would say, only those who have gone through these gates and these hoops are able to be used of the Lord. Here you just have these common, uneducated men who are being used greatly by the Lord. They'd spent three and a half years with him. They'd enjoyed him. They'd experienced him. And as he had poured his life into theirs, as they had been with Jesus, this power and fruit and knowledge and strength had come flowing from their lives. And we must be a people who will allow the Lord to raise us up and equip us for everything that he wants to do through our lives. We're not to look at the the official people in ministry and to say that they are the only ones who are able. We're to say, no, the Lord is looking for the common. He's looking for the uneducated. He's looking for every believer, the priesthood of all the saints, and he wants to use our lives. Now, the reality, it says in verse 14, is that when they saw the man who was healed standing behind them, they had nothing to say in opposition. You know, the reality is that you just can't argue with fruit. Oh, I've seen people try. But the reality is when God is bearing fruit in a man or a woman's life, you just can't argue with it. Much like Aaron's rod that budded. You know, all the rebels who said, you know, we can be used by God in the same way that you can. You're nothing special. God hasn't called you particularly. When Aaron's rod budded and, and theirs did not, Moses said, put back the staff of Aaron before the testimony to be kept as a sign for the rebels that you may make an end of their grumblings, grumblings against me, lest they die. God had made his choice, and he'd made it rather publicly. And here, these religious leaders, they had no man who was healed standing beside them. No, they saw this man standing beside Peter and John. The power of God was obviously not with them, but with Peter and John. But when they had commanded them, verse 15, to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But, verse 17, in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Now, how Luke got this 
inside information about the conference that the religious leaders had together, uh, we don't really know. It could have just been something that Peter and John, you know, were privy to as they watched it all happen. But maybe men like Nicodemus, who became a believer, or Paul, who became a believer, maybe those men gave Luke that inside information. But what they tried to do was to silence Peter and John. Look, you know, you're, we're going to let you go, but don't speak any more in the name of Christ. But Peter and John, of course replied by saying these classic and very important words for Christianity, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, uh, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Now, this has often become uh, the Christian ethic for dealing with state and other authorities. You know, that we must listen to God rather than to man. We have to testify of what we have seen and of what we have heard. That's important not to apply that too broadly or too liberally. You know, uh, every small little thing that we think is a some kind of, uh, you know, personal affront to the scripture, uh, we resist it. No, there are times where we're just called to be obedient to our governing authorities. But here, it had direct ramifications on their ability to preach the gospel. And for that, Paul and John said, no, we have to testify. We must speak of what we have seen and what we have heard, which at the end of the day is really what gospel witness is all about. We're testifying of what Christ has done in our lives through his forgiveness and cleansing that has flowed from the blood of the cross of Jesus Christ. They were testifying simply of what they'd seen and of what they'd heard. And when, verse 21, they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them. Because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. You know, it's just obvious that this man was going to be disabled for the rest of his life. He was more than 40 years old at this point, but still, the Lord had mercy upon him. Still, uh, the Lord touched him, and these religious leaders had no way to argue. Now, when, verse 23, they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and their rulers were gathered together against the Lord and his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats, and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and continued to speak the word of God with 
boldness. So Peter and John, I know that's a long prayer that I just read there, but Peter and John, they depart from the religious leaders. And when they're released, they go straight to the other believers. Their friends is the description in verse 23. They went to their friends and they reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And their response is so fascinating. They, they didn't sit around and complain about it, but they, when they heard it, lifted their voices together to God in prayer. They just began to cry out to God. They responded to him in prayer. This is the first moment that hostility is really coming against them. And in that moment, uh, they go to the Lord in prayer. And notice the first thing that they pray. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You know, when your world is shaking, when persecution and uncertainty abounds, you must get a big picture of God. And that's exactly what this church was doing. They were going to the Lord. They were calling him sovereign. You know, that there is nothing that is outside of the control, the power, the realm, the strength of God. That he was sovereignly leading their lives. And that even as Peter and John spent that night in that prison, God knew and God saw and God was sovereignly orchestrating the affairs and the events of their lives. They focus on the creative power of God. You made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, they say to God. And then they focus on the promise of God, who through the mouth of our father David, and they you know, go back to Psalm 2 and quote all of this. They think of the predestination power of God. When they say that the nations, even though they were raging and they took the holy servant Jesus whom God had anointed and Herod and Pilate and the Gentiles and the Israelites had killed Christ, they say in verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. You know, as they prayed, this confidence in God was rising up within them. They were saying to themselves and then saying to God, you're in control even in the moment when things seemed to be most insane, most out of control, and the cross was coming, and your son, your servant, the Messiah, was being rejected by Gentiles and Jews and Herod and Pilate, and it seemed that the whole world was falling apart. In that moment, your predestined plan was unfolding. Your hand was involved. And all of this, as they're praying, was causing their hearts to soar. They were gaining a confidence in the Lord afresh. And in that moment, they asked the Lord for boldness. Boldness. Boldness to speak the word. They said, Lord, you, you stretch out your hand to heal. You do signs. You do wonders. But give us boldness to continue to speak your word. This is a powerful prayer from this early church. It's a prayer that we must remember and emulate in our modern times, that we need the boldness of Christ. We need the ability of God. Now, in the middle of all of that, there's a little phrase that is very helpful to us in understanding the inspiration or the process of inspiration in God's word. It comes in verse 25 when they said, Who through your, the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. So here, David is the mouthpiece. David is the author. But David, when he wrote Psalm 2, which they quoted, he apparently, according to them, said those things 
by the Holy Spirit. So that's just a little hint there at the process of inspiration. David, the author, said what he said in Psalm 2 by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was the author behind the author. Now, when they prayed, it said that the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. And so the Lord heard their cry and power was given to them. Now Luke closes chapter 4 by telling us, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Just a beautiful description of the early church. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. Now we know that that brand of generosity, it's radical. It's radical to see people say, oh, these aren't my things any longer. They don't belong to me any longer. We see even from earliest childhood the tendency of mankind to say, that is mine. But here the church has everything in common. And as I've mentioned before about the book of Acts, not everything that's described in the book of Acts is prescribed for our modern era. What is prescribed for the modern church is that we, because we've been impacted by the generous gospel of Christ, we should be a generous people. You know, in some way, shape, or form, generosity should overcome our lives. Uh, but the that's the prescription. The description of the way that generosity was flowing at that time in this early Jerusalem church is that they were sharing everything. They had everything in common. Perhaps they were expecting the Lord to return at, at any moment, but it was beautiful uh, at that time. Some people wonder if they got themselves into a little financial difficulty because of that commonality, and maybe that's the reason for some of the gifts that the Gentile church would collect to send to Jerusalem. Uh, we really don't know, but at least at this moment, you just have to bask in the beauty of this kind of hyper generosity. And with great, verse 33, power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. So again, the incredible hyper-generosity of the early church. Now, one of the things that Luke likes to do is he likes to mention someone who he's going to talk about later in the book of Acts in a more minor way initially. And Barnabas is going to be a fairly significant character in the book of Acts later on. Here we get our initial mention of him. It says in verse 36, Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Uh, Luke has been telling us about this hyper generosity, this communal generosity. And now he gives one specific example from this man who was named Joseph, who apparently by the apostles had been renamed Barnabas because he was called the son of encouragement. What an incredible gift to have. And he had likely encouraged so many believers and had been so encouraging perhaps even to the apostles themselves. 
And as a Levite, uh, he couldn't own land in Israel, but he did own land abroad there in Cyprus, the island out in the middle of the Mediterranean. And he took some of that land and sold it and took the proceeds and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now pay attention to this man Barnabas. He's going to be used mightily, greatly by God. Uh, the main thing that God is going to use him in his life for is to powerfully serve and preach and minister to the church in Antioch, up in Syria. But then also, uh, he's going to be the one who calls for Paul and begins to pull him into that preaching ministry life there in Antioch. And as we say, the rest is history. God bless you and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.